0: Alright, friends, if I could call you back to your seat. Good morning, everybody. If I could get you to return to your seats. If you don't have a Bible, make sure to... Make sure to grab a Bible in the back, or um, if you don't have a bulletin, make sure to grab one of those. Our scripture reading will be in both of those. We, we read from the Bible before every sermon, so um, if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab one of the ones we have in the back. I want to make sure that everyone has access to a free Bible, and I know we have apps that will give you access to Bibles, but there's just something about having a Bible in your hand that goes a long way. And so I want to encourage you to take one of those Bibles. Those are our gift to you to be used um, for you and and for your life and your study of who God is and what He's done. We're continuing in our study of Paul's letter to Timothy, um, which is 1 Timothy or 1 Timothy in your Bibles. It's a very small letter, but it's a letter that has profound impact on the life of a church. And so... Being that we are a newer church and needing to learn from the Bible on how to be a church, there is not a more fitting letter for us to study. And so this is where we will continue to go in the weeks to come, and I'm excited to continue to preach it. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. Follow along as I read it. that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to introduce you to one of the most influential characters of the 20th century. His name is Karl Barth, and he was a Swiss theologian who is known famously for opposing German liberal theology in Nazi Germany in the mid-20th century. If you want to say this, he was an intellectual of intellectuals, respected and revered throughout the world for his intellect. His writings, though complex and often inaccessible, had such a profound impact on the world that his commentary or his writings on the letter of Paul's to the Roman church was an international bestseller and is still in print today. His massive series titled Church Dogmatics is still widely studied in the church today. And his impact on society cannot be measured All you need to know about him, though, is that it was so significant that in 1962, Time magazine put a theologian on the cover of their magazine. Who was that theologian? It was Karl Barth. But there's one particular story that stands out to me about Karl Barth. While on a trip to the United States in 1962, this brilliant and accomplished theologian was asked by someone, how would you summarize the essence of the millions of words that you have published? And I love his answer. He responded this way, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like Bart's writings, Christianity can often be complex. We can find it difficult to read the Word of God, to come into church and to understand some of the complexities. Why are we standing? Why are we sitting? Why are we doing this confession? What is this assurance of pardon? There can be some complexity and we can be overwhelmed. Because of this, we can often be tempted to give up, saying, I just don't understand Christianity. It seems somewhat inaccessible. If we give up, we give up. If not, we just grow apathetic and follow in with the culture, which is so prevalent in our society, especially here in the South. But the reality of Christianity, like Barth's teaching, is that in its essence, it's actually quite simple. What is the essence of Christianity? What is the door that will allow us to begin to understand it so that some of the complexities can begin to make sense to us? Because indeed, the complexities have their place. So what is the door for Christianity that we can walk through that we understand its essence? Well, the answer to this question, I believe, is found in verse 15 of our Scripture passage today. And here, the Apostle Paul is telling his protege Timothy this. Verse 15, you can look at it. He says this, The saying is trustworthy, And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In these clear and simple terms, Paul lays out to us the essence of Christianity. Christ has come into the world to save sinners. This statement is indeed incredible news and I'm here to tell you that it is easy to understand. But I'm also here to tell you that while we might understand it, the truth of it is, that understanding might not have ever gone into the heart of our souls and it makes a difference. One of the profound realities of the text that we read is that book ending this little short little essence of Christianity are two things. In verse 12, Paul begins by saying, I thank Him. So it begins with thanksgiving. And then if you look at verse 17, look at how he ends it. To the King, all glory and honor be to Him. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, be honor and glory forever. It ends with praise. One of the ways in which we can know that the essence of Christianity has moved from our mind and into our heart is that our life is filled with thanksgiving and praise. And yet many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have lives that are not filled with thanksgiving, are not filled with praise. If anything, our lives are filled with worry and anxiety. But I want us to change that. I want the essence of Christianity for many of you to go from in your mind and to your heart. Because indeed, it will bring about great joy and thanksgiving. So how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to run through the autobiographical sketch that Paul gives to us in these verses. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Paul's past, we're going to look at Paul's present, and Paul's not with us, so the present being the time that he's writing this, and we're going to look at Paul's purpose. So let's look at Paul's life, his past, his present, and his purpose, that we might see the essence of Christianity go from our mind into our heart. So let's look at Paul's past. We catch a glimpse of Paul's past in the opening sentence, starting in verse 12. When he says I give him I give thanks to him who's given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor and insolent opponent but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Paul's past was such that when God moved towards him by grace overflowing grace, hyper grace, which is the very word that he uses. He couldn't believe that it was coming to him and it led him to thanksgiving. For those of you that don't know, thanksgiving is always the response to having a need met. Or as I say this, thanksgiving is the natural response to receiving love. And Paul, having his sin exposed by Christ and then met through Jesus, was moved to great thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And thus the key to thanksgiving is the clear understanding of one's need. And in our case, our sin. Paul is very clear about this. Look at the sins of which Paul exposes to all of us in this letter. He said, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. In this one small sentence, Paul articulates for us the sin that characterized his earlier life. He defended the Jewish faith against Christianity, challenging all that Christians were saying about who Jesus was, saying what Jesus is saying is not true, thus becoming a blasphemer. Secondly, he persecuted Christians for disrupting the Jewish order. And at times, his persecution brought about the death of Christians. And the most infamous of these stories is Stephen in the book of Acts. He then adds a third description of his sins. He was an insolent man. Now, this third way seems a bit odd to us. I don't hear the word insolent in everyday language. And so I thought I might describe to you what this word means. Insolent can simply mean violence. But I think violence doesn't even capture what Paul himself is describing of himself in his former life. Because the word that he uses is hubristine. Paul says, I was hubristine. And perhaps you you hear in the root of this word hubris, you can kind of get a sense of what he really means when he's saying that I was insolent, or as we translate it, insolent. Paul acknowledges his hubris, which is where we find the word pride. And so he was this prideful, violent, insolent man. Paul's ability to describe in detail his sin and go into depth of what he did is a necessary component to his experiencing the essence of Christianity, which is Christ came into the world to save sinners. Do you see the connection of his thanksgiving? He had clear understanding of his sin, and yet he experienced the salvation that Christ brings and this led him to thanksgiving. I had a friend in Orlando who served several tours of duty in both Afghanistan and Iraq as a part of the Marine Corps. My friend was a very nice man. And when you when you'd first meet him, he'd be very friendly, but in truth be told, he was somewhat shallow. I chalked this up to him being, you know, you know just trying to get to know you and things like that. I would have never guessed that my friend had a secret life. But this isn't exactly what he had. Every time he was offered by his superiors in the army an opportunity to head back overseas on a tour of duty, he would take it. And some of the times he had the option of staying in Orlando to be with his family, which was young and growing. But he took the chance to go back overseas to continue this double life that he was living. But this second life began to wear on him. It became an intense burden on his life. And so one of the days, with this burden laying on his shoulders, he called one of my friends, who was a pastor. A man himself who had been who had been exposed and experienced incredible trauma and abuse at the hands of others. He knew that this is a man he could trust. And so at sitting at a Chick-fil-A booth on a random morning, my friend confessed to my pastor friend the second life, going into detail all the heinous ways that he has cheated on his wife and abused and run from his family. As you can imagine, things did not go well for my friend from that point on. His wife didn't want much to do with him. In fact, she wouldn't even she despised being in the same house as him, but they would sleep in different bedrooms so that they could take care of their children. Indeed, there was a coldness that existed between husband and wife. They were married on paper, but definitely not in practice. But his confession of his sin began to do something to him. It started to awaken in him the reality of Christ's grace. And it was this grace and mercy extended to him through Christ's sacrificial death that began to transform his heart. After many agonizing months of intense counseling, my friend began to change, and this shallow facade that I had first experienced began to fade away. His marriage, which was once cold, following his confession, began to become warmer. It became more intimate and beautiful. And here was a beautiful picture to me as I saw this family restored because a man was willing to confess the particular sins of his life. A beautiful picture to me of moving the essence of Christianity from your mind into your heart. The key to my friend's transformation was the owning and the confessing of his particular sins, much like Paul. If the essence of Christianity that Christ came into the world to save sinners, is ever going to move from our mind into our hearts, we have have got to come to grasp the true reality of our life. That we have sinned against a holy God. Yet we are so often reluctant to confess our sins. And the reason we're so reluctant is because we don't think there's grace. One of the most practical ways though, that you can go about doing this, one of the most practical ways that you can confess your sins and get it out into the open and begin to experience the grace of God that is there for you, is to find a trusted and mature Christian friend. If it's me, fine, I would be happy to do that. But it's not necessary that you do it with a pastor. Confess your sins to somebody. And then begin the journey to the grace of God. It is sweet. It might be difficult in the beginning, but slowly but surely, it <laughs> <you> changes. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> they are having a great time. <laughs> We're up here talking about sin and. Uh... <laughs> So if the essence of Christianity is to go from our mind into our hearts, then we must see, like Paul, our sin. But there's a second, an important aspect, if the the essence of Christianity is going from our mind to our heart, is that we've got to see the reality of sin in our life today. If you look with me at what Paul says in verse 15, you can see that Paul had a present reality of sin in his life. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul not only understood that his past required the grace of God, he also understood that his present day reality did as well. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Whereas the old King James says I am the chief of sinners. What is Paul saying here? I mean, is he really the foremost of sinners? I mean, was he sacrificing children on the altars of foreign gods? Or leading nation states to commit genocide? Was he part of some devious, godless cult? The answer to these questions are certainly not. In fact, at the time of Paul writing this message, he was considered a Christian apostle. A man who had committed himself to Christ in his life to bringing His transforming message of the grace of God to all the world. He had received the respect and the admonition of Jesus' own followers, His disciples. How can He then consider Himself to be the foremost of sinners? Not formally the foremost of sinners, but actively the foremost of sinners. The only way that Paul could say this is his understanding of what sin is. And what is truly at the heart of sin. If we go back to the list that Paul begins with. Blaspheming, persecuting, an insolent opponent. There is one theme that ties all three of these sins together. And that theme is pride. All three of these sins were revolving around himself. He thought he knew what God was saying. He thought he was doing God a service by persecuting the church. He thought himself better, more prideful than others, and therefore he would violently treat other people. At the heart of his sin was pride. A rebellious action against God. Choosing himself rather than God. So the Hitlers of the world, the infamous cult leaders and the serial killers, how are they acting? What are they acting under? The very same thing Paul himself was acting under. Pride. It is pride that is at the heart of every one of our sins. Choosing yourself over God. Because he understood that pride was at the heart of every one of his sins in that day, He had to subjectively wrestle with it each and every day. And He Himself saw His sin of pride in the same way that He saw everyone else's. But since He wrestled with that sin in particular, every day He attested, I am the foremost of sinners. The essence of Christianity will never move from your head into your heart until you come to the realization that each and every day you need the reminder of God's grace because you, like Paul, are tempted to choose yourself rather than God. Paul fought that same battle each and every day. And he considered himself the foremost of sinners. I know this intimately well. Like Paul, I look to myself very often. And I was reminded this past September, as many of you walked through this, when I experienced a great medical scare that thankfully didn't turn out to be much more than my body's reaction to stress. Earlier in the week, I started to feel funny. My arm had gone numb, and I just chalked it up to sleeping on it wrong. But on a Friday morning, as I was writing my message, the numbness moved from my arm into my face. Shortly thereafter, I started to slur my speech as I tried to recite that which was I was writing. And I couldn't say a word and it was troubling to me. I started to feel dizzy and disoriented and quickly called my friend who was a doctor saying, what's going on? He told me to head to a walking clinic where they would do an EKG and to see what's going on. So I did. I had my wife drive me to the EKG. They, seeing the EKG, immediately referred me to the Arkansas Heart Hospital. I was quickly admitted to the Arkansas Heart Hospital, and their triage room quickly drew blood, hooked me up to an EKG, and took x-rays. My friend, who I had called, telling him that I was suffering and going through this, immediately came from the golf course to be at my bedside. So did my wife. Bailey watched my kids. As I sat at the bedside, we were just making small talk, but then I reminded them of this story of Joshua 6 that I had read earlier in the day. It was... a quite providential that I had read this story. And if you ever read Joshua 6, you will know that it's a very strange occurrence that happens between Joshua and the Lord. You see, Joshua is in the desert. And it's just him and the Lord. And the Lord is dressed up in garbs of armor. And he's got a sword. And Joshua is getting ready to take the promised land. And famously, or famously he's known to conquer the city of Jericho not long after this occurrence. But as I read this one passage today, it was the words of the Lord said to Joshua that really resonated with me in that morning amongst a lot of the stress that I was under. And the Lord told Joshua, I am going to fight for you. God's saying to Joshua, I'm going to fight for you. You don't have to worry. And I'm sitting in the bed and I'm talking about this with my, fr- with my friend and with my wife, telling them this, this story and how it had a pro- profound impact on me this morning. And then I said, give me my Bible. And I turned to Psalm 32, which was a sermon I had preached two weeks earlier about a confession of sin. And then the flood works started coming. Psalm 32 says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. David, here he was saying, When I didn't confess my sin, my body was experiencing the ramifications of my sin. And here I was in a hospital bed, experiencing profound pride and trying to do this church on my own, fighting it for myself. And I started to confess my sin of self reliance and pride before Kimberly and before my friend. And let me tell you, the flood works came. My blood pressure which was at 180 immediately dropped from 180 to 120. You want to talk about a profound experience of the grace of God? That's one for me. I immediately experienced God's grace. And I experienced it physically. If the essence of Christianity is to go from our mind into our heart, we have got to come to the reality of our own pride in our life, even today. Even if we are doing the very thing God has called us to do, we must confess and rely on the grace of Jesus for today. Because we still need it. We still need it. And this is why Paul said to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Subjectively, he knew that intimately. And he walked with Jesus. Let us not think that the Christian life will ever lead us to the place where where we become independent of God and His grace. For such independence is the essence of pride. If anything... As a Christian, you will become increasingly dependent on God. And one of the things that's going to result in this is an increased understanding of your own sin and the ways you rebel against God. You will begin to understand how Paul could say, I am the foremost of sinners. You'll begin to see how your pride manifests itself in all of your relationships. You will see how your pride causes you to wear masks and to hide. You'll see how your pride will take good things that God has given and then use them for your own benefit, oftentimes objecting things for your own sake. But ultimately, the Christian life is one of dependence on God and His grace, not independence. So by mercy, God will continue to reveal to you the depths of your sin, And you will continue to experience His grace. Hallelujah. This is why confession is such an integral part of every one of our worship services. But it's also integral to every part of our day. To confess our sins throughout the week. Because in confessing our sins, we are acknowledging our constant need of the grace of God. Paul's present reality in verse 15 reminds us of this truth. It is hard to put him to practice. But in truth, it's the best way to live. For dependence on God and His grace brings about joy and thanksgiving. So if We're going to move the essence of Christianity from our mind into our heart. We have to see Paul's past and the ways in which he does that. We have to see how he wrestles with in the present. But also we've got to see Paul's purpose. And Paul gives us his purpose in verse 16 for all of this, when he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul wants to see us to see in this very verse, the very reason of God's mercy towards him as the foremost of sinners. He wants us to know that there is no one too far from God. Not you, not your neighbor, not your mother, nor your friend. As the foremost of sinners, Paul says, look, there is no one you will come across. There is no one you will see in the mirror that is too far from God. I know this because I know this intimately myself. Did you know that in all of the New Testament, there's not another conversion story repeated more than the conversion story of Paul? Why is this the case? I mean, in the book of Acts alone, he tells it constantly, his story. Why? Why? Because Paul's story is a picture to us of an opponent of Christ, someone so zealously against Christ, who in but a moment of, moments of time is radically transformed, not because of anything that he's done, but because of the radical grace of God that came to him, an insolent opponent of God, a blasphemer of Christ in his church, a persecutor, that in a moment's time that God took the worst and made him the best. In a moment's time, God's grace does it. Paul wants us to see the power of God to sinners. And this is the reason that Christ is using himself that there is no one too far from God. Rosaria Butterfield is the wife of a Presbyterian minister in North Carolina and a prolific Christian author. And in her latest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she writes about the tumultuous relationship that she had with her atheistic mother throughout her life. For 80 or so years, Butterfield's mother was a staunch, um, antagonistic person to Christianity and her faith. Butterfield often recalls that she attempted um, to disrupt Bible studies that they would have in their homes while she was living with them. She would scoff at the things that she would say. All these beautiful truths that Butterfield had come to believe were just stupid to her mother. But as Butterfield's mother got older, terminal lung cancer brought her into hospice. She was dying and she didn't have much time to live. Initially, when Butterfield went to care for her mom and to sit with her as a good daughter would do with a mother that's dying, her mother was still being antagonistic towards her faith. But one of the things that Butterfield began to do was to sing psalms, and in particular Psalm 23. And as Butterfield's mom began to pass away, these songs began to have an impact on her. And she said at one point, I know I'm dying, I know I'm becoming weaker, but somehow I find my soul getting stronger. Why is that? And Butterfield says, it's because the shepherd's near. And slowly but surely, this atheistic, stubborn, hard-headed mother began to soften. And finally, she looked at her daughter and said, tell me about this shepherd. Slowly but surely, in a moment of time, Butterfield's mom, a staunch atheist, Gave herself to Christ, confessing her sin, and then two days later walked into heaven. There is nobody, Paul tells us. My purpose of living, Paul says, the purpose of my life is to demonstrate to you, Timothy, and to the people you minister to, and to you today sitting in this room, that there is no one far from God, that God is able. By his grace to transform the most hardened of sinners. <clears throat> what about you? Do you feel as if God could ever extend his grace to you because of what you've done in the past or even what you're doing currently? Do you feel like God doesn't have the power to transform those you love that are far from God? Are you putting barriers on God's power for transformation for your neighbors and your friends? Paul's grace and mercy extended to him as the foremost of sinners reminds us that there are no barriers to God's power. That there is no one too far from God. And until we understand this and truly believe it and maybe even see it for our own eyes, we will never see the essence of Christianity go from our mind and to our hearts. We will never experience the thanksgiving and the praise that comes as a result of such a truth. (laughs) To you, I cannot recommend finding stories of transformation, of transforming faith. There are stories that are written like Butterfield's mom, that you can read, biographies that you can read and stories that you can hear to remind yourself that there is There is hope for the hopeless. I mean, read the stories of Paul. Find autobiographical work. Listen to friends tell their stories. Go to an AA meeting or celebrate recovery meeting to hear how God has transformed the lives of those people there. Because the reality is, there is no one that is too far from God. For Christ came into the world to save sinners. Who Paul says, I am the foremost. I have to admit that I have never spent much time reading Karl Barth. I've tried, but I have often found it very difficult. But you know what? When he says the essence of his writings are summarized, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A door was opened to me for his writings. Because now I understand the essence of his writings. And if I find the time amidst three kids and trying to preach sermons and all this stuff, I think I might be able to begin to grasp what Bart was trying to say in a lot of his writings. I might not agree with all the things that he says, but I know what he's trying to get at. My friends, it's the same with Christianity. What is all this about? What is the essence of Christianity? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the way that this truth, this this door that has been given to us by Paul enables us to walk through is by considering the sins of our past, confessing them to God, Realizing the day to day that we in our pride are so tempted to turn our backs from God and become dependent on Him and to remember that there is no one too far from God. No one. Not even yourself. By God's grace, may He move the truth, the essence of Christianity from your mind into your heart. Let me pray. Lord, I thank You for these words. I thank You for the testimony that Paul provides for us through his letter to Timothy. A reminder to us of Your great grace and the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ Jesus. I ask, Lord, for many of us who often find this statement of Christ came into the world to save sinners, this statement that can often stay in our mind I ask that by Your grace that this truth would sink deep into our hearts, bring conviction of our sin, remind us of our dependence upon You, and remind us of the great power that You can use, that You do use, to transform lives. Do this now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.